Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell. Today we're going to be talking with Anne Blackburn, author of the new book, Locations of Buddhism, Colonialism, and Modernity in Sri Lanka. Uh, Professor Blackburn's book is primarily a uh, what she calls a micro-history of a particular monk who um, lived in uh, Sri Lanka during British colonial rule from 1827 to 1911, uh, Hikadue Sumangala. Um, he inhabited many different fields, uh, or what uh, Professor Blackburn refers to as collectivities of belonging, uh, where he engaged in uh, a lot of Buddhist Christian debates, as well as lay monastic organizations, in order to help uh, develop Buddhism or protect Buddhism during the British colonial uh, period. Um, her book obviously touches on not only colonialism, but also the, uh, the the ongoing debates that Buddhist studies is having about Buddhist modernism or modernity, um, and uh, I think raises a lot of, of, of very important questions about how we study this particular period of uh, Buddhist history. Um, and has a lot of applicability not just to studies of South Asia or Sri Lanka, but also to other um, areas of the Buddhist world that have been um, uh, marked by colonial rule or colonial engagement or um, a bit later in history, of course, um, um, imperial uh, uh, imperialism throughout, uh, for, uh, for example, East Asia. Um, her book, I think, raises lots of uh, very important uh, questions about how we go about studying this particular period of Buddhist history, um, and I, I can highly recommend this book. I think it was, uh, it was, it's very well written. Um, and without further ado, let's get to the interview. Okay, so um, I want to say uh, hello to to Anne Blackburn. Hi, how are you today? Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you on the phone. Thanks uh, for calling. Thank, thanks so much for agreeing to uh, the interview. Um, your book is, of course, Locations of Buddhism, Colonialism, and Modernity in Sri Lanka, um, which is a, a wonderful, great contribution to the uh, not only to the field of South Asian Buddhism, but also to uh, the, the uh, ongoing debates about colonialism and modernity and uh, post-colonial studies. Uh, and, and in a previous uh, episode of uh, the New Books in Buddhism show, we had a chance to speak with um, David McMahon, who, of course, has done a lot of work on Buddhist modernity, and so our listeners are probably aware of some of these issues. Um, but, uh, of course, your book focuses uh, on a very specific character, and we'll get to that. Um, and I uh, just want to say that I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Um, well, thanks for those kind words, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy to speak with you today. And I also think that David's book is a great contribution, so I'm glad that you had him on as part of your podcast series. Thanks. Um, so uh, how we usually uh, start things off, of course, is to um, find out a little bit about our guests. Um, so if you uh, uh, could tell us um, and how you came to be interested in, uh, in, in, in Buddhist studies, but as in, in general, but also um, in terms of this particular, the particular subject of your, of your book. Okay, thanks, Scott. I think um, really I would probably go back to undergraduate studies days when I ended up at Swarthmore College in really good uh, professorial company. I took a number of classes in the history department with Lillian Lee, Professor Lillian Lee, and with her worked on um, 
really sort of roughly speaking, I guess we could say medieval Chinese and Japanese history and early modern periods as well. One of the striking things about some of those readings was the mention that was made of the intersection between what, what we might call religion and what we might call politics, especially in relation to how imperial centers um, in East Asia engaged with Buddhism and Confucianism. Uh, so I became interested in during those classes with her and a couple of her other colleagues in the history department in how religious traditions are recreated and interpreted within a range of cultural and political contexts. And, and that sent me off to the religion department at Swarthmore, which was also a very strong department, um, and gave me the chance to work there with Donald Swearer, Don Swearer, whom uh, some of your listeners will probably know through his very important work on Thai Buddhism. Um, and he was a tremendous resource in exposing me to a uh, history of, of Buddhism, especially in South and Southeast Asia. Uh, also to work uh, that was then being done or had recently been done on Buddhism in relation to colonialism and some of the uh, early work on uh, what we would now call the problems of Buddhism and modernity. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and while well, I was at Swarthmore, by chance, really, I ended up as an undergraduate studying overseas in Sri Lanka for six months. And that was was clearly um, a very big catalyst in terms of turning my attention to really centrally to South Asia and Sri Lanka, particularly within a South Asian Buddhist environment. And I was lucky enough to be there for six months, as I think I said just a moment ago, with um, a program called the Isle Program, which is still running. And I was there uh, working under the direction of Professor John Strong, whom some of your listeners will also know, another super scholar of, of Buddhism. So I was in very good company there with Professor Strong, but also studying uh, Sri Lankan history and um, economics and about Buddhism in Sri Lanka anthropology to some extent, with some of the leading lights of the Sri Lankan university sector at that time. And working with them was a a tremendous um, boost to my knowledge of Sri Lanka and my interest in the country. And I think those six months of living there really laid the foundation for my ongoing interest in uh, in the country and in, in Buddhism in Sri Lanka. When I returned from that undergraduate stint in Sri Lanka, I ended up doing some thesis research on Sri Lankan Buddhist temple communities in North America, focusing on uh, Washington, D.C. and New York, Queens. And that was possible partly thanks to Steve Piker, who's um, an anthropologist of um, Southeast Asia with an interest in Buddhism. And his support and Don Swear's support allowed me to really deepen my work in those areas and, and build something you know, by, by way of modest, um, independent research in those days. Um, so that's a lot about undergraduate experience, but in my case, I think those undergraduate years were really very, very important. Those teachers and, and that travel to Sri Lanka and time with contemporary Sri Lankan Buddhist um, communities in North America as well to really make Sri Lanka and Sri Lankan Buddhists a uh, very live and lively part of my own um, academic consciousness. Um, and... Do you want to jump in here, Scott, or shall I say oh. a little bit more immediately about the, the you know, how this then leads to, to the subsequent work? Yeah, uh, please go ahead. Okay. I mean, in some ways, I think that uh, Locations of Buddhism, the book that we're centrally talking about today, was really the dissertation that I wanted to write in graduate school. But I was wisely, I recognize, advised not to write it then, um, I say wisely because Frank Reynolds, who was my thesis uh, advisor at the time, 
of that time, you know, remarked that it would not really be such a, a promising topic for uh, a first major research project, partly because Buddhist studies as a field is quite a conservative field, still is, was certainly then, and it might have been disadvantageous to uh, sort of form oneself as a scholar focused centrally on, roughly speaking, modern materials and modern period. Mm. Um, but in addition, I've come to recognize that he was also even uh, methodologically astute probably as well, because there's certain things about how 19th century or colonial period problems look that you can't really see, um, or you can't see afresh without looking at them from a, um, a, a longer, deeper temporal perspective. So it was, I think, very, very useful to the gestation of locations of Buddhism that um, it was not a dissertation project, and it got set aside um, for many years. And the, the dissertation work that then was developed further in my first uh, monograph looks at 18th century Buddhist um, learned culture, monastic Buddhist learned culture in Sri Lanka, and some institutional developments in the Buddhist world there, uh, focusing on the 18th century. Mm. And looking back also sometimes to 13th century uh, models and materials. So location of Buddhism, you know, centrally takes up a story uh, about a hundred years later than the core story of that first book, Buddhist Learning. And I think having that 18th century perspective and uh, an early or pre-colonial perspective was really invaluable for uh, thinking about the British colonial period in Sri Lanka um, in a sort of more in, de- in from a, a, a new or differently independent perspective. Hmm. So, uh, uh, let, so getting into the, the locations of Buddhism more specifically, the book is um, focuses in on on one particular character, um, uh, a, a very learned monk named um, Nikodave Sumangala. Uh, hmm. Sumangala, pardon me. Um, hmm. So, uh, uh, for our listeners' uh, sake, let's go ahead and just in- introduce this 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 person and um, and and tell us a bit about his his life and and why he's a, a central figure and, and why you chose to um, look at him. Okay, yeah, great, great question, Scott. Thanks. Um, I knew going into locations of Buddhism or the early research for it, I knew that I wanted to find some way of exploring. Um, Sri Lanka-based Buddhist activities during the British colonial period, and I wanted to work at least to some degree in monastic um, contexts because Buddhist monks were an important part of the literati and, in a way, you could say political activists of that time, but also because I know something about, or thought I knew something about Buddhist monastic culture on the island after the earlier work that I'd done. So it was an area where I felt some confidence in, in developing further I spent a certain amount of time, probably a year on and off, as research goes with teaching, um, trying to learn more about leading monks in the 19th century in Sri Lanka. By leading monks, I mean monks who were more or less public figures, who had their hands in many pies, and who might have left some kind of a textual record that could be used to work with. Um, And a number of monks caught my eye, and I had the, the benefit of some interesting um, writings made by uh, Buddhist monastic scholars in the mid-20th century, giving brief biographies of some of these monks. In any case, um, Hikadue Sumangala, it became clear after some of this preliminary work, both second- with secondary sources and in the archives in Sri Lanka, it became clear that he was someone who would make a very um, 
a potentially valuable focus uh, because he was active in so many areas that he would illuminate a very broad sphere of activity on the island, uh, but also because there was enough of a paper trail about him that I could really explore him and his activities in more depth. There are other monks who would provide a very interesting way in also, uh, but the materials, uh, their writings and so on, were not quite so readily available. Um, so Hikadue Sumangala was of interest to me because he was such a, an influential and active figure um, engaging uh, Buddhists in Sri Lanka, monks and lay people, uh, Buddhists in other Asian countries, scholars of Buddhism, both from, from Japan, from Europe, from other parts of Asia, America, uh, and then also uh, certainly engaging with colonial administrators of various stripes. Hmm. Um, so uh, I know early in the book you sort of uh, you know you open the book with uh, talking about his uh, birth, of course. <laughs> uh, so uh, can you just say a bit more about his uh, his his life and his career that um, that led to him being a rather important figure during this time? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, he was from a, a family that was um, reasonably well connected. I guess in our terms, we might say he was a sort of at least an upper middle class figure. Uh, members of his family had some roles to play in colonial administration, and um, it's clear that he was connected to some influential local families in the southern coastal region of Sri Lanka. So um, he was not a nobody from nowhere, um, and that undoubtedly helped his rise in the Buddhist Sangha in the monastic community of Sri Lanka. But obviously, this was, as it becomes clear from his writings and his activities that he was also someone, must have been someone of, you know, very strong intellect and really indomitable um, energies. Um, but he was born in Sri Lanka um, at a, in the early part of the 19th century when um, really Buddhists in Sri Lanka, and certainly I think maybe we could say especially in the southern coastal regions, were really grappling with um, Christian presence on the island, Christian missionary activities, um, there was a certain restlessness growing among Buddhists in the island about how to respond to the um, criticisms of Buddhism that were emerging from Christians and Christian missionaries. Um, British colonial control was consolidating on the island, so what it was to be colonized was becoming clearer at that time in the first half of the 19th century. And and so Hikadue Sumangala you know, come, came of age in those currents um, and it's important, I think, also that he was a Southerner. Um, the Southern um, Buddhist monastic world has a history of close connections to the Sri Lankan upcountry, but it's also Southerners are, have been very, very proud of their literary heritage and their intellectual heritage and often have sort of laid claim to a certain kind of independent traditions of interpretation and scholarly work. And I, it's, I can't prove this, but it seems to me um, not unlikely that being a Southerner was important to him in terms of, I don't know, taking, um, I don't know, seriously some sense of intellectual responsibility for the vitality of, of Buddhist monastic culture of his time. Right. So, so, uh, so some, some of the broader issues, it seems to me, have to do with um, the sort of uh, discourse of of, of uh, Sri Lankan Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism uh, 
uh, sort of protecting uh, uh, Buddhism. Um, and, and does this come out uh, in in the colonial context? Uh, you know, not just a sort of protecting Buddhism for the for its own sake, but also um, defending it so much, uh, so to speak, against uh, the British colonialists as well as uh, Christian uh, missionaries. Yeah, that's right, Scott. I mean, the, the British. Um said that they would be hands-off of religion in Sri Lanka, and they were administratively often, in certain ways, hands-off, uh, kept their hands-off religion, but um, they were very interested in a whole lot of sort of social and institutional areas that religion very quickly touches, and so um, even without perhaps wanting to or thinking that they would become so, they became um, quite deeply involved in certain aspects of Buddhist institutional life. For instance, on the island, they were pulled into discussions about monastic succession to temple properties and um, things of that kind. Um, depending on who was the governor at any point in time they and what was the mood in London at the colonial office there, they were more or less um, supportive of Christian or encouraging, I should say, of Christian missionary activities in the island. Um, some governors really tried to dampen down the Christian missionary presence, and some governors were quite happy to give the missionaries quite a bit of free reign. So it's it's a complicated picture in that regard. It would be too simple to say that the British that the colonial administration was always Christian and pro-Christian and was resolutely um, opposed to Buddhism. It would be fair to say that most colonial administrators came from, you know, basically a, a Christian cultural space, mm-hmm. and they didn't know a great deal in many cases about um, Buddhism and other religious traditions on the island. Although some of them had develop strong interests in them over time. Um, but certainly from the perspective of many Buddhists on the island, at least the ones who've left us some kind of literary record through their letters and newspaper traces and so on, there was a sense that um, Buddhism was under siege. And that probably has something to do with um, these missionary activities and conversions to Christianity on the island, which had been going on already for a couple of hundred years, because the Portuguese and Dutch had also been present as as Christians uh, and proselytizers as well as colonial overlords. Uh, But I suspect it has particularly to do, in the Sri Lankan case, with the um, removal, that's a long story for another day, but the removal of the, the last king of Kandy, who was the... Um, supporter of, you know, his structural position was one of supporting the, the Buddha Sasana, the world of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And without a Buddhist king on the throne, I think many Sri Lankan Buddhists who operated in a basically royalist frame of reference um, were really fearful about the future of Buddhism. There was, you know, no sort of supra-patron um, anymore on the island and ways of adjudicating Buddhist disputes and ways of organizing the flow of capital for Buddhist institutions were all in different ways thrown into um, confusion by the absence of a Buddhist king. So the absence of a Buddhist king and the presence of Christian missionaries and um, intensifying British administrative control, which at least sometimes had pro-Christian and or anti-Buddhist tones, um, did combine to create a, uh, a circumstance in which, I think, as best we can tell from the records we have, um, many Buddhists in the island felt that their um, their world was insecure. Right. I was, I, you know, when you said the British were going to be hands off. Um, it seems that you know, prior to the the colonial period, of course, there was a Buddhist king, and um, even if you don't want to to take a role in religion, that's a pretty drastic change in terms of how 
the Sri Lankan Buddhist culture is uh, understood prior to the colonial period. Um, so, so what was yeah, absolutely, and it's just sorry, just jumping quickly to um, say that you can imagine, you know, sort of Queen Victoria discovering that she was meant to be the queen of the Buddhists, and um, <laughs> you know, she really didn't know how that game was to be played, right. even if she or her advisors had any remote interest in playing it. You know, she would have been. I mean, I'm saying this partly to make us both laugh and the audience perhaps also, but it is an interesting sort of um, line down which to travel. You know. Uh, right. There would have been no cultural familiarity on the part of the British, really, with what it was to perform that structural function. Uh, right, and then, and then, so, 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 uh, what was Hikadoue's uh, sort of uh, uh, reaction to some of these issues that were going on? So, yeah, he's an interesting character. I think I try to pull out some of, draw out some of these um, strands in in the book. An interesting character because he operated in so many areas roughly simultaneously. And so some of what he did was um, certainly uh, participate in Buddhist-Christian debates in writing and verbally, um, trying to defend um, Buddhist positions, doctrines, ways of interpreting certain things textually um, against missionary attacks. And he had a fair amount of work to do. He didn't do it alone. He had a fair amount of work to do at that time because the the uh, Christian missionaries were attacking Buddhism with more and more, we could say, textual sophistication at that point, and they were taking upon themselves to learn quite a bit about um, teachings contained in the Pali Canon, we might say, or the Buddhist Epitaka, the authoritative teachings of the Buddhist tradition. And some of these missionaries were learning Pali, you know, a liturgical um, uh, doctrinal language of, of Buddhism in Sri Lanka and elsewhere in the region, and um, they were becoming better and better educated in, in Buddhist textual matters, which meant that they would come to Buddhists, uh, intellectuals and activists and practitioners with, you know, sort of chapter and verse um, queries and condemnations of Buddhist positions. So monks like Kekadue Sumangala, who had been trained well in the text, uh, were extremely valuable in this uh, Buddhist-Christian um, debate culture because you needed people who knew the texts to argue with these Christians who had started knowing Buddhist texts. So that was one sphere in which he definitely worked, and he did not work alone, as I say. He had a lot of um, collaborative colleagues, both lay and monastic, in the Buddhist world at his time. Interestingly, some of those collaborations extended across um uh, what we might call now call national or political borders. You know, there's evidence of communication with um, Buddhist monks in Burma, for instance, where Hikadume Sumangala or some other monk from Sri Lanka would write and say, you know, hey, we have this conundrum put to us by the missionaries about something to do with like flat earth, round earth, that kind of thing, and what are we going to do about it? And um, you know, tell me how you've been answering that question with you know when you get your po- when it's posed to you. Um, but um, Hikadue Sumangala was also um, very much involved in activities that we might think of as um, operating somewhat outside the sphere of, of Christian threat or British colonial threat. And that's one of the things that I do try to draw out in the book, is that not all of what he did was a response to um, British presence, or at least not a direct response to British presence, and not all of it was a response to Christianity. Um, he was very involved in caste debates. Um, Sri Lanka is a is a country that has a long history of um, of organization along caste lines, and there were very interesting, you might say, caste politics that characterize the 19th century. And he was active in those arguments. Um, 
And that's something we sometimes find counterintuitive. What's a Buddhist monk doing uh, writing about caste? But in fact, that was a big part of what he did as an intellectual, and it was not seen as um, uh, by him as something uh, contrary to other um, obligations, you might say, intellectual responsibilities that he had, that he undertook. Um, another big problem or um, challenge, I guess, for him and some of the other monks of his day was how to... Um, uh, how to engage with um, two new forms of Buddhist interest that were characteristic at the time. One of them was the, the European and American scholarly interest in Buddhism. You know, these scholars of Buddhism kept washing up on Sri Lanka's shores from places like Moscow and London and or sending letters, and they wanted to know certain things about Buddhist texts, and they wanted sometimes copies of texts, and they wanted to meet famous scholar monks and so on, and um, you know, these people occupied a certain amount of social time and also intellectual time for uh, monks like Kekudue Sumangala. They had really obligations to these people that they often tried to meet very faithfully, I think quite generously, one gets the sense from the letters. But sometimes the questions that these scholars were asking were questions to which, questions that would have seemed puzzling to the Sri Lankan monks or the Sri Lankan monks would become frustrated that the answers they gave were not really properly assimilated by the uh, scholars of Buddhism abroad. So it's another interesting dimension of this time, a somewhat fraught um, and shifting relationship um, between monk scholars and um, non-monk Euro-American scholars of Buddhism during this time. And Judith Snodgrass has written some things about this, which are, are useful to see also, I think. Um, um, so those were all pieces of the puzzle for Hikidui Sumangala. What I was about to say is that in addition to the um, foreign scholars of Buddhism creating another sphere of obligation and responsibility, um, this was a time in which um, new forms of, of lay Buddhist, non-monastic Buddhist associations were forming, partly, uh, probably, um, as a kind of um, on the model of, of Christian church associations. So, um, you know, one of the features of some Protestant traditions is, uh, you know, the kind of um, congregational um, uh, ways in which a congregation, uh, the, the non-clerical congregation organizes for certain kinds of good works and so on. And and that began to be the case in the Buddhist world in Sri Lanka. Um, and a variety of small and larger um, lay Buddhist associations were developing on the island in the later part of the 19th century. Some of them lasted very, very short periods of time, kind of in the blink of an eye they were done. Uh, others had long, long histories, um, including the Buddhist Theosophical Society and the Mahabodhi Society, uh, two societies that I look at a bit in the book. Um, and these societies are, are kind of interesting case. They are often described by scholars as examples of the laicization of Buddhism in the period. I think that's incorrect. They, the, lead, the lay leaders of these societies were very, very keen to have monastic involvement. And in certain cases, we can see that monks like Hikadure Sumangala played a very big role in helping to mobilize the activities of the societies, in um, doing some of the intellectual work of the societies, in managing complicated social relations, and so on. So these were um, ex new forms of, of lay monastic engagement, I think we should say. Um, and they took a lot of time also for someone like Hikadure Sumangala. Um, so that gives some sense, perhaps, uh, 
for your listeners, you've already read the book, you know these things, Scott, but for your listeners, maybe give some sense of some of the um, the spheres of activity that uh, Hikadui Sumangala and some of the other leading monks of his time were involved with. Uh, right, and, and you describe it toward the end of the book as uh, uh, locative pluraliz- uh, pluralism or um, collectivities of, of belonging, if I remember correctly, uh, which I th- yes. think is sort of a, a really interesting uh, uh, theoretical turn um, to make as a way of, of, of exploring uh, historical figures. Um, if you could uh, sort of say a bit more about what uh, what those terms might mean in terms of how we can understand uh, Buddhist history. Uh, particularly sure. through individuals. Sure. Thank you for that question, Scott. It is something that I think is um, potentially useful in the book. At least it's a problem I was trying to puzzle through for myself in writing the book. I think that um, this um, phrase that I introduced at certain points, locative pluralism, and uh, and then I also mentioned, as you say, collectivities of belonging, those are both on my part basically reactions to identity, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I think uh, is has been doing... Uh, too much work too badly um, in studies of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, historical and contemporary. But also, I think it's problematic historically more widely, and um, I'm not the only person to be thinking along these lines. Uh, There's a very interesting um, set of essays by um, Frederick Cooper, who's a historian of of Africa, um, which takes up some of these questions as well. You know, what does a term like identity really do for us, and, and does it do enough? Does it, or is it too too uh, too broad or floppy a term? Respect with respect to um, Sri Lanka, particularly, um, the one of the problems that I think we face now in scholarly circles is that um, even serious scholars think that there's something called a singala Buddhist identity, mm-hmm. um, and um, yet if we, it's not. But it's not really clear uh, what this means. That is to say, it's a little bit clear what it means in contemporary political discourse. Um, and you could either be happy or not happy about some of the values that are ascribed to a so-called single Buddhist identity in contemporary political discourse. But leaving that aside, if we try to move back in historical time, that term single Buddhist identity has this contemporary um, set of meanings associated with it, which don't map out very well at all onto the historical um, evidence of the past. So in my view, it's anachronistic to um, apply the term, the contemporary term, Sinhala Buddhist identity, to um, a period even, say, before 1956. Um, but So that's one problem. Secondarily, identity singular seems to me problematic because we should know even from our own experience as people living in the world that we are many things to many people, to put it in sort of fairly simple ways. And I, the term identity worries me in historical work because it um, it seems to me to occlude so much from view. Um, it either asks us to think about things at such a level of generality that it's not very helpful, or it suggests that there really is one point of identification for a person or a group at all times, which we should know from our own experience is not true. So with lo- this notion of locative pluralism and an explicit attempt to explore different spheres of activity simultaneously in which there could be different collectivities of belonging to which Hikadue Sumangala felt that he had a responsibility, I'm really engaging in a sort of historical thought experiment here and a methodological one, trying to find some way of telling an historical story 
without getting caught in this singular identity term, mm -hmm. which is anachronistic, but also um, um, inadequate to the the evidence at hand. Right, because he's moving from one area to another pretty seamlessly, you know, uh, uh, you know doing this sort of lay uh, monastic engagement and as well as uh, Buddhist Christian dialogue, as well as, you know, more what we might take up as uh, sort of traditional, to use a horrible word, uh, <laughs> uh, monastic duties. So it's, it's, I think it's a very, uh, and as you say, it's very helpful to think about our own experiences that we are more than one thing to more different people. Um, uh, uh, which uh, to think of uh, certain identities, I think this gets to the other issue that I think is very, uh, very important in your book. And that has to do with the, the way that we have framed uh, uh, colonial uh, Buddhism uh, or Protestant Buddhism or Buddhist modernity. There's, there's all these terms that have been used in the last 20 or 30 years to describe uh, the changes that happened in Buddhism uh, in colonial uh, uh, contexts. Um, uh, and I, and I, I think that your book makes a very important contribution to these issues. So to sort of begin this, this part of the conversation um, mm -hmm. to sort of frame uh, what we mean, what, or what, what previous scholars have meant by these terms of Protestant Buddhism um, and, mm -hmm. and how you see these terms uh, used and, and uh, how you react to them in, in your book, I think is the, is the, the question I'm driving at here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for raising this as well. It's, um, uh, it's helpful, I think, um, to have you raise this one. This term, Protestant Buddhism, um, is an important term, and it was, I think, a very valuable term in the way that it was first introduced. And it's important to remember, and, and I try to indicate this in the book, too, that it was a, it's a term that was coined by Gandhav Obiasekara, a very um, talented anthropologist of Sri Lanka, many years ago, well, not so many, you know, some, some decades ago, um, to do sort of very restricted work for him in an analysis of the Anigarika Dharmapala, a certain um, kind of quasi-monastic, quasi-lay Buddhist activist, uh, late 19th, early 20th century Sri Lanka. And um, uh, Sekra developed this term, Protestant Buddhism, to discuss some of the activities of Dharmapala, and he, spread, and he expanded a little bit further um, to suggest that maybe this Protestant Buddhist term was useful to think about some of the Buddhist dynamics in the colonial period because um, Buddhists were sometimes taking on more Protestantized forms of organization at the same time that they were protesting against Christianity. But he, he it was a, it's a, that was a very creative uh, formulation in his initial usage, but it wasn't intended to become the descriptor for all of... Um, Sri Lankan Buddhism for 150 years, um, you know, from 1815 when the British take Sri Lanka to now when we have whatever we're now calling modern Buddhism. Um, and it wasn't even really intended, I think, to, you know, become the, be the key to a discussion of British colonial period Buddhism. So it was an analytical try and a really valuable one, but it had a more restricted agenda. I think that that's important to say because I'm not um, dissing his term. Uh, and I think that his work is very, very important. What came after was that um, a process through which scholars progressively expanded the reach of the term, mm. and they began to use it as a term of convenience, so that it came to be the stand, kind of the the the, um, the analytical category that was the go-to category when people wanted to explain Buddhism in the 19th century. Oh yes, well that's when Protestant Buddhism comes out, comes around in the island, or that's when Buddhism in Sri Lanka becomes Protestantized, or something mm -hmm. like that. 
And then it seems so like it's really, been, truly, it seems like it's been applied yeah. even to non Sri Lankan contexts as well. Yeah, it has which, um, it, absolutely. It's yeah. part uh, to me is part of the the, the difficulty. <laughs> uh, as yeah, saying, that would be uh, very very interesting to see. You've seen that it's it's been explored in Thai context. You've seen it in East Asian context. People think, well, does it tell us anything we need to know about even you know mm-hmm. Euro American Buddhism and so on? So. Um, yeah, it has taken on. It's an important um, point to make, Scott. It's taken on a life of its own, even beyond um, beyond uh, Sri Lanka and beyond Southern Asia. We could say. Um, uh, now, in this wider use of the term, it's. Um, I don't have the, the, all the pages of the book in front of me here, owing to a combination of um, technical difficulties. But um, some of the key features of it in its wider usage um, include what's often called increased rationalization, mm. um, increased indebtedness to textual authority on a kind of so-called biblical model, um, 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 a lessening of um, ri- the investment of Buddhists in ritual activities, um, and the rise of lay religious authority over in place of monastic authority. And um, the evidence I've seen from 19th century Sri Lanka suggests that most of that is, that really that's all wrong. I mean, to put it so strongly as it's put in the strongest versions of the Protestant Buddhism description is extremely misleading. Um, and one of the things that I'm particularly keen to show in the book is that Buddhists are still really keen on ritual. Monks have still a lot of power. And the um, uh, hermeneutical techniques, if you want to call them that, for dealing with Buddhist scriptural materials or textual, authoritative textual materials um, have a very long history, and they're not somehow recalibrated on a Protestant model in the 19th century. People like Hikadue Samangala are reading old books about how you read Pali texts, and they're quite conscious of that, also Sanskrit and Sinhala. So um, the, 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 in its larger use, when its use was expanded beyond the, the initial um, formulation by Gannath Obiasekara, the term Protestant Buddhism is, I think, misleading because, um, A, it's been used to as the, the key descriptor for a very, very large and complicated historical field. Lots of people, lots of years, uh, lots of social phenomena fall under that category as it's been used lately. Um, but also, it's wrong. Um, and uh, in, empirically, it's mm-hmm. inadequate. Um, so, and, and it seems the, the suggest, challenge... It seems to oh, suggest that there was a, a sort of a switch that's thrown almost, that at some point there was... You know, this one form of Buddhism, and then the colonialist came, and everything changed. Um, and it, well, that, that's right. And it seems as though, uh, particularly what you show in the book, is that there was a, a lot of continuity between uh, pre-colonial Buddhist culture in Sri Lanka and post-colonial. Um, that I, I, you know, I think supports your 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 uh, claim that that this term is, is 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 incorrect when it's applied so broadly. Yeah, yeah. Your term, throwing the switch, is a is a great one, I think. And and this is where you know we can't just say that the Protestant Buddhism term is wrong or inadequate. Historians, you know, lots of us, not just me, have to go into the archives and into the evidence that we have and really try to come up with something that's more satisfying. Because if we just sit around and say, well, that term is is no good, then that's pretty just sloppy. So, um, you know, and my book is not at all exhausted in this regard. No, I don't think that somebody you know threw a switch in. Um, you know, in 1860 or 1875 or mm-hmm. whichever you know year you want to choose, and all of a sudden we have Protestant Buddhism. The story of of uh, you know uh, how Buddhists are reinventing Buddhism is a very very interesting story for any time or any place. If you like that kind of story, and um, there's a lot for us to learn about Sri Lanka in the 19th century still. 
uh, as well as every other period. Um, you know, we're a tiny field and we know far too little. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. And I, you know, in case any aspiring graduate students are listening to this podcast, I want to say there's great material in the archives. Um, you know, and if people are willing to learn languages like Pali and Sinhala, especially, there's a lot to be done. One of the difficulties with um, working in the colonial period is just is the linguistic challenges. And we need more people who will read more things in Sinhala and Pali and Sanskrit because a lot of the really um, nuanced um, intellectual work, social criticism, evidence of shifting social engagements is not in English. Mm. And that shouldn't surprise us, really, but it often seems to. So if we want to do better than the... the the um, uh, what I think is the inadequate um, formulation of Protestant Buddhism in its in its you know um, extensive uh, formulation. If we want to do better than that, then we just we need more people with more skill to read more stuff, um, so that we can begin to 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 deepen you know our understanding of what was really going on. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, uh, To to continue on with this topic, it seems as though uh, Protestant Buddhism has been uh, in some ways uh, almost replaced in the last uh, few, Mm -hmm. the last decade or two with uh, the term modern Buddhism or or Buddhist modernity. Um, Many of the um, uh, characterizations of of Buddhist modernism, I think, uh, mirror some of the the um, broad yeah. formulations of Protestant Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, in, so in, from that point of view, I mean, the, the subtitle of your book, of course, is "Colonialism and Modernity." And so, mm-hmm. um, how mm-hmm. does uh, how 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 does how does modernity fit into uh, this particular mm-hmm. um, story and this particular monk? Right. Yeah. Thank you for that, too, Scott. Um, it is interesting what you observe. I think you are right that um, in the most recent years. Um, at least five, maybe, um, a bit more than that. Um, Buddhist modernism or modern Buddhism have become um, keywords, in a sense, for the field. And Protestant Buddhism has slipped a bit to the back. Um, I think that partly people began to realize, you know, um, I was not the first person to criticize the term Protestant Buddhism uh, by a long shot. People began to realize that there was something inadequate about it but um, it's nonetheless, it sort of spoke to a set of puzzles that people mm-hmm. have had difficulty putting down. And so while thinking maybe that's not quite the right term anymore, they've remained engaged with some of these puzzles. And puzzles to do with, um, I guess, um, when there's, an ins- there's maybe a kind of scholarly, ins- scholarly ins- instinct that somehow colonialism must have been made a really big difference if we could just figure out what it was. Um, uh, but also, um, as um, studies of modernism and modernity have exploded in fields outside Buddhist studies for much more than five years, um, it's natural that those the uh, reverberations of that have found their way into Buddhist studies. And so I think, in some ways, what we see is that a newer generation of scholars is now working with the problem of Buddhism and modernity because it's the newer problem and the old problem of Buddhism and colonialism is the old problem. Um, in many ways, they are, they're sometimes set up to be the same problem, but under different names, and then sometimes not. It really depends on what um, understanding of the modern or modernity or modernism any particular scholar is working with. And 
um, one of the things that I'm that I do in the book is make some pleas. I think, um, although it's not my central concern, I do make some pleas at certain points that we need to be much more precise about what we really mean when we talk about a modern or modernity, because analysis, any analysis of so-called Buddhism and so-called modernity is really only worth, you know, it's it's only as good as the the um, the precision of those analytical terms, right? And Buddhism is too big for most purposes, and modernity is also, in my view, usually too big. Um, at the very least, someone needs to really specify, you know, what are they invoking when they say the modern or modernism and so on. So we need a lot more work, I think, along these lines, um, just trying to make um, much more um, uh, claims that are more precise and and decide when it's really going to be valuable to use that kind of analytical language and when is it not. So just as Protestant Buddhism became sloppily used mm-hmm. um, um, in some quarters, um, Buddha, modern Buddhism, Buddhist modernity, all that stuff is sometimes sloppily used, and it's sometimes well used too. You know, there are good books written trying to understand the genealogy of the term and um, what it means where and so on. That's really valuable. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me about Hikadui Samangala is that he didn't seem to think he... Well, sorry, what I say in the book is that he didn't... Um, the evidence of his that I have anyway does not show um, a sense of being in a new time, um, a new time like so different from another time that we might think that this is now the modern and the other time was something else. Yeah. And he doesn't participate at least in the in the extant materials that I've seen, he doesn't participate in a in a kind of temporal developmental discourse or like call for a new Buddhism for a new age. Right. You know, and some Buddhist some Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka a little bit later do do that. And some um, Buddhist monks and lay lay people too in Sri Lanka and Buddhist monks and lay people in other Buddhist countries obviously have done that at different points in time. If we were to really, I think, improve the um, scholarly conversation on Buddhism and modernity, one of the things we could do is really look to see who in the Buddhist world invokes this idea of a new time. When? How? Why? Because mm-hmm. it also you seems... Know, and that would... Go ahead. Yeah, please go ahead. No, uh, go ahead. Just, it seems to me that uh, one of the, the sloppy ways that we use these terms is to... Uh, uh, going back to your idea uh, of... Uh, collection, collective, collectivities of belonging and whatnot, um, that we will label people or identify people as being mm-hmm. modernists or traditionalists. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, in some ways these folks might be more modern or might be more traditional, but in mm-hmm. other ways they're different. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think this is, it's, it's very compelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of food for thought here. And, and, and one of the, the books that's been very, very um, thought-provoking for me is Anne Hansen's book, How to Behave, about um, modern, so-called modernist monks in, um, in excuse me, in um, Cambodia. And one of the interesting things that her work, uh, you know, caused me to reflect on more um, self-consciously is, is this point, you know, when do Buddhist intellectuals say that they're modern or they live in a new age or they're creating Buddhism for a new age? And that's a point that she she asks and explores in her book. And there's a companion question, I think, which goes beyond the reach of her book, but which is worth asking, which is, and what do they say when they're not saying that? Mm. Um, you know, and that goes back partly to my collectivities of belonging, because it's also entirely possible, and I, by this I do not mean duplicity in... Um, in, in, in speech or intent, but it's perfectly possible for people, you know, intellectuals, for instance, to be 
um, expressing, um, uh, you know, um, an interpretation that really talks about like new Buddhism for a new age in one context because they think that that's a valuable um, framework of understanding or a call to arms or whatever it is in a certain um, elocutionary moment. Um, but in some other context, they may put it a different way. So one of the things that I, I think we don't really understand, for instance, or at least I don't understand, maybe I'm just, you know, still failing to understand it, is, you know, how are, how are Buddhist intellectually, intellectuals um, um, kind of you, sorry, what I really want to say here, let me take a step back and say, I think we need much more intellectual history within Buddhist studies, in, in South and Southeast Asian Buddhist studies anyway. There's more of it on the East Asian side, but you know, these lay and monastic intellectuals, they they thought complicated thoughts and expressed them to a lot of people in a lot of different contexts. And we have not, for the most part, really engaged that world of intellectual output, much less than our colleagues in East Asian studies have done work in intellectual history. Which means that we don't really understand the intellectual world or if you don't want to, if you want to stay away from the term intellectual and go for something a bit broader, we don't really understand the discursive world, you know, that we are describing sometimes as modern or modernist. Mm-hmm. We don't even know the content. We don't know the content of this world, and yet we're rushing to apply these categories to it. It's utter nonsense. Right, and you know, and it reminds me of another uh, a passage in your in your book because uh, you know we we began this conversation talking about colonialism and, and clearly colonialism. Um, has a huge impact on this part of the world, um, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote quote your book here and say that you uh, you say uh, quote we can choose to examine spheres of intellectual and social activity in a historical context, emphatically marked by the presence of colonial rule instead of looking at intellectual and social responses to colonialism. Um, uh, that was one of those passages that I read and thought that's 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 exactly right on <laughs> to, to sort of talk about uh, rather than seeing the intellectual um, life of these folks as nothing but a response to one particular mm-hmm. issue. Um, mm-hmm. But, but not forgetting that this is an important part mm-hmm. of their, their, mm-hmm. their culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for noting that passage. It was, uh, uh, you know, an attempt to, to try to bring some things to the fore for our reflection. It, it seems to me, you know, very um, arrogant, basically, um, a- arrogant from a kind of external perspective to assume that, quote-unquote, colonialism managed to dominate the lifescapes and the thoughtscapes of all these people for all this time. It just, you know, um, it seems um, unreasonable. Um, but also, since colonialism is another one of these words that, you know, sometimes doesn't do quite enough for us, um, it also doesn't tell us very much. Right. If we say that such and such is a reaction to colonialism, well, then we need a lot more precision again. So um, uh, there's just a lot of, I think, um, uh, problems, both analytical and empirical problems for us to think through. So, so think about these big terms, colonialism and modernity and uh, um, Protestant Buddhism. Uh, it's, it seemed in reading the book very clear that uh, what you were really trying to do was to take it back down to a small scale by focusing in on just one a uh, particular person rather than the broad sweep of these big general terms in order to get to some precision. Am I, am I reading that correctly? Well, in, in some ways, yes. I think that, but we might want to separate out the issues a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, there are certain problems with the terms themselves, or maybe better said, maybe more generously said, 
we need to think about the reach of the terms, what they can do for us, where and where they falter. Um, um, and there we need to choose our analytical vocabulary in relation to our aims. And I think we need to choose our analytical vocabulary and our um, comparative organizing terms um, more carefully, maybe more creatively than we have sometimes done. And um, we may um, want to move away from some of these terms which have become so commonplace, but they're also really big and unwieldy. Um, um, so that's one part of it, one part of my, um, I guess, the direction in which I'm moving. But the, the question about scale is, um, is related, but also partly separate. Um, that is to say, if we operate from a smaller scale of research, focusing on an individual and his projects and networks, as I do in this book, or a, I don't know, history of a, of a society and its interconnections or something like that, or something that is roughly speaking maybe micro-historical in, in orientation, we're going to see certain things about um, the processes at work and cause and effect patterns and things like that from that vantage point that we might not we wouldn't see from a larger scale of generality. So if I'm studying plantation economy, I'm going to see something different than if I study the organization of a particular plantation. Um, and if I study um, uh, Buddhist monasticism or Buddhism, I'm going to see something different from what I will see if I study Hikadue Sumangala. I'm looking in different places and I'm seeing things on different level of, of um, uh, specificity. Um, I think that the now to bring the two pieces together, I think that doing some of these smaller scale studies along the lines of the Hikadue Sumangala project might help us to reconfigure some of our analytical terms or give us some food for thought about developing new ones. Um, so if we see what happens in the world of Hikadue Sumangala and um, we then we need to develop some analytical tools that can encompass that and speak to those uh, that empirical record. So my locative pluralism and collectivities of belonging are two attempts to introduce terms that I think of as analytical terms, but they they response they're responding to the archive. Um, um, and they, I'm not saying those terms are exhaustive. There are other terms waiting to be um, to be conceived of, and and those you know will need to be refined or whatnot. Um, so I'm not sure if that's been clear enough, Scott, because I'm thinking on my feet in response to your good question. But um, uh, I think we want to think about scale of research. Um, where are we looking in the in the historical record? At what register? Or what on what scale? But then also in terms of your question about the analytical terms, what does looking at smaller scale um, at the smaller scale empirically teach us about? the need to refine or refine existing analytical terms or invent new ones. Right. Depending on where we look, we might see uh, the strengths or weaknesses of, of pre-existing analytical terms or, or the need to um, explore new explore new horizons. For, for yeah, that yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that that's correct. And, and there's just, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and it should be really tempting for us. It shouldn't be off-putting. It should be a great invitation. Absolutely. Um, 
Uh, well, yeah. you know, I think we're, we're uh, uh, nearing the, the end of our time. And um, I, I want to say again that I think that's, uh, this is a wonderful um, contribution to uh, many fields, really, or subfields within uh, Buddhist studies proper. Um, and uh, uh, the traditional last question that we ask on our, on our show, of course, is um, to see what you're currently working on and what we can expect from you um, in the future. Well, thank you, uh, Scott. Uh, it's been a, a fun conversation for me, and it's interesting to bring my mind back to that book project and have a chance to discuss it with you. Your questions have been really thought-provoking. Um, in terms of new work, um, I'm going back in time and um, looking right now at um, Lankan or Sri Lankan mainland Southeast Asian Buddhist um, ties between about 1,000 and 1,500 and it's a very, very tricky period to work on. The evidence is meager and so on. But um, I should say, to probably just something more here to explain, I'm interested in it from um, two perspectives, mainly. Um, what can we say about the um, the connections that did obtain among, around, um, among these places um, during this period in the sphere particularly of monastic culture? I'm thinking about connections between various Lankan or Sri Lankan kingdoms, um, Sukhothai, Ayutthaya, uh, Vanna, um, uh, Pegu or Bago in Burma, um, Bagan early on, Inwa a bit later, and so on. So I'm interested in what's now, roughly speaking, Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand uh, between 1000 and 1500, and what we could say better than we have said so far about the connections that obtained in monastic culture among these places. But I'm also interested, the second piece is that I'm interested in how um, uh, Sri Lanka or Lanka is represented in texts um, composed in um, mainland Southeast Asia that are reporting about this time. Hmm. So there's a, um, there are many different kinds of roughly speaking chronicle texts um, that were composed in the second millennium in, on the mainland that in different ways take up the image of Lanka or the problem of Lanka or the promise of Lanka more often. So that's another piece of this puzzle that I'm looking at. So how is Lanka uh, represented and textualized from the Southeast Asian mainland in relation to Buddhist monastic culture in this time, roughly 1,000 to 1,500? And what can we say more than we have found so far about the actual empirical connections that, that existed among these um, these locations. And much of the work will be very collaborative, is already very collaborative, because it involves a lot of resources that I don't have uh, solo uh, command uh, over linguistically and, and so on. So it should be a fun project um, extending um, for quite some time. I don't think that my you know I will be able to, to give anything like it as a final answer on this um, very, very complicated story, but I'm hoping to explore this somewhat and... Um, and be able to develop, um, um, in some ways, maybe able to um, present some new evidence and some new ways of thinking about evidence that we already have. And in some other cases, hope to ask at least a few questions that, that might open up um, you know, future work, um, collaborative work, or, or work that others are doing independently. So it's a, it's a new field. I often say that I'm going back to grad school again. <laughs> it sounds it sounds. Totally fun. <laughs> to oh, be yeah, honest. Um, yeah, it should uh, should keep me keep me uh, keep me feeling lively for a while. Great. Uh, well, uh, thank you again so much um, for being on the show. All right. Thanks again, Scott. Um, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks a lot. 
You've been listening to an interview with Anne Blackburn, author of Locations of Buddhism, Colonialism, and Modernity in Sri Lanka, here on the new Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>